You're listening to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Today, and for the next three podcasts, we are marking the 20th birthday of the Innocence Project of Florida, founded in 2003. And who better to have as my guest than Seth Miller, executive director and longtime dear friend. Seth will take us back to his time as a student intern at the project and share his early successes as its leader. And we'll be meeting two people who credit in the Innocence Project of Florida for their freedom, Dean McKee and Stephanie Spurgeon. It's great to have you back on the podcast, Seth. Thanks, Harriet. I'm uh, thrilled to be back. I hope you're well. Yeah. All right. So let's begin by traveling all the way back to 2003. What was your role like at that point in time? Well, I was much younger at that point in time, Mary. In, 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 2000, in 2003, our, you know, our project formed. Uh, it was then called the Florida Innocence Initiative. And uh, it, it was a little bit different than what it is now. It was you know, formed as a, a legal clinic at the Florida State University College of Law um, and was attached to, you know, a, class, a wrongful convictions class that was being taught at the law school. And so I was in that class as a student. Um, but, you know, I, I, I first sort of gained interest in this com- completely because when they announced the opening of the, of the organization of the project, Barry Shett came down from uh, New York, uh, from the wow. Innocence Project to come sort of announce that they were opening this, this thing. And I was a second year law student. They had a big um, gathering for the talk in the rotunda of the law school. And I remember kind of being up on the stairs on the landing, watching from um, above and listening to Barry passionately talk about the need to open uh, a project in Florida and to attack what was then a backlog of cases that needed uh, testing, DNA testing, that didn't have anyone to work these cases and certainly didn't have students and lawyers to try to figure out whether they would be appropriate for DNA testing. And so, um, you know, as a student, I was like, well, you know, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do for the summer. This seems like, uh, you know, as good as anything to do. And uh, I went and sought out the head of the organization at that time, Jenny Greenberg, and said, hey, I'd like to get involved. Hmm. And then how did you become executive director in 2007? Were there some mid-steps in between 2003 and 2007? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's important to note that kind of back, you know, at that time, um, you know, we were in a little bit of a crisis um, when I was a student because we had a deadline on post-conviction DNA testing. So my time as a student was largely spent um, working up these cases and identifying uh, cases that we could bring for post-conviction DNA testing, working with pro bono lawyers. And so, you know, that in 2003, 2004, before I graduated law school, that's what I was doing with Jenny Greenberg, another woman named Sheila Meehan um, in the, the office of who someone who you know, Sandy Dallenberg, who has just had finished his presidency at Florida State University and had come back to the law school. And so, um, you know, that was the situation we were in. It was a, a tiny little project. But then I graduated and had to move on and do some other things. I went and worked at a court, uh, went up to Washington, D.C. Uh, to do uh, policy work on um, related to 
um, the death penalty. And then it was in 2006 that our project, and again, then the Florida Innocence Initiative, got our first big grant that allowed us to hire um, a staff attorney and at that point, a social worker. And that was in 2006. So I came back down to Florida from Washington, D.C. Uh, and started again at the project as a full-time staffer now on August 21st, 2006. And it was, you know, in that year and a couple months that our previous director, Jenny Greenberg, decided that she wanted to step back from the role. And I was hired by the board upon her recommendation to take over as the executive director in November, 2007. Wow. Um, two questions. Did that feel like a heavy responsibility and were the, you the only lawyer for the project at that time? So it's so funny that you ask that because, <laughs> you, you know, sometimes when you're young and ambitious, you think you can conquer the world, um, but you don't have the, um, I think the, enough lived experience the years behind you to, to fully understand what you don't know and um you know as someone who was 20 years old at the time and you have um someone who is your mentor telling you you know you you need to be the director of this organization i was like oh that's great you know i'm gonna mm -hmm. be in charge i'm gonna get a raise <laughs> you know and and but then you know i didn't truly i think understand the full weight of the responsibility and I always say that, um, you know, the board probably should have done a national search and hired someone who wasn't me to take over, largely because I think it, it took me a number of years to kind of get my feet under me feeling, you know, figuring out how to run a statewide nonprofit organization, both, you know, resourcing the organization, supervising people, hiring, firing the whole thing. And um, I wasn't really prepared for that. And at a small organization, there was no one to you know, to mentor me, I was in charge now how to make all the decisions. So, you know, in retrospect, I might have, you know, not taken the role, but, you know, um, after all these years, I'm, I'm very glad I did because I've, you know, gotten the ability to work with wonderful people and really, you know, remake the organization in, in the way that I wanted to with the help of our board of directors to make it into the thriving organization that it is. So, all right. So the, the, question about were the, the were you the only lawyer and today how many lawyers do you have so what was it like back then so i was the first staff attorney hired so when i came um jenny greenberg was the executive director and she was a lawyer she'd been a lawyer since the late 80s um you know doing death penalty work so we did have another lawyer on staff um, um who you know, my mentor someone who could help guide me um and we only had, um, you know, who you remember, Tony Shrewsbury, probably, who yes, um, was our assistant director and hired just, you know, five months before me. So she was responsible for, you know, running the sort of back end of the organization. Um, after I was hired in August 2006, we had another search and we hired uh, a gentleman named Richard Jr. to be um, our second staff attorney. So um, he was maybe hired six months, seven months after me, maybe. Yeah, and so... Yeah. And of course, Anthony Scott, our social worker, um, was hired um, at the same time as me and he came on. And oh. so when we, you know, when this organization now had five people, right. And so, okay. um, however, um, you know, after all these years, we still only have two attorneys. We have a, we right. have a executive director and a staff attorney. And what we've really done is kind of 
you know, bolster other parts of our legal um, department. We have a very robust three-person intake team because we get so much volume of um, requests for assistance that we have to have full-time people who can get through all those so we can find our next cases. We have um, an investigator who, um, Amy Carr, who is uh, more than a decade of investigative experience in capital and non-capital cases. She's um, been here for two years now. We had a previous investigator before that, and we just hired a new investigator. So we'll have two investigators. So we've put a lot of resources into, I think, necessarily into the development of cases because we can have as many lawyers as we want, but if we don't have people who can identify good cases and right. investigate them to, to build them up for the lawyers to litigate them, then um, people would just be sitting around doing nothing. And so, um, and so once we've developed that capacity, now we're, you know, going to work towards, and I know we'll talk about this work towards hiring more lawyers. Right. Now, again, a comparison, because we're looking at 20 years, you know, worth, how many cases were you able to handle in the early years as compared to now? So I think it's important to answer the question. It's important to give some context um, about sure. what we were like in the beginning. So, you know, when we first started and it was only Jenny Greenberg as a lawyer and a bunch of students, um, we weren't really handling any cases in house. I mean, a lot of what we were doing is um, working with we'd ident we'd be more of like an intake office. We would screen cases decide that you know which cases needed to be litigated and then either litigate them um in partnership with the innocence project in new york um because they were dna cases or get you know and or get pro bono counsel from big law firms so we worked with you know holland and knight um, took a ton of our early cases and uh, from zuckerman spader carlin and fields you know these firms um you know who want to uh, you know, assign attorneys uh, pro bono to work because they care about doing work in these areas. Um, you know, they came on to be the local litigators in those cases um, and we worked with them, but we didn't do cases at that point by mm -hmm. ourselves because we were a brand new organization. Um, and when I came on as a staff attorney, you know, naturally, because I was like, hey, I'm a young attorney. I want to get litigation experience. I want to grow in this area. And I said, we really need to do our own litigation. When I became director, it was an imperative for me to say, we need to build the, the internal expertise to do this work principally on our own. We can still partner with pro bono lawyers, still work with our you know partners in the Innocence Network to the extent that it makes sense. And we've continued to partner with the Innocence Project when they have cases that they want to litigate here in Florida. But you know, then we might've had a handful of cases and now we're, you know, litigating 30 to 40 cases at any one time. Um, and so, and, and that is a shift and it was a necessary shift because, you know, when you're an organization and you're trying to you know, step out on your own and you want to grow the organization, you have to have your own successes. Um, and, and it was really important to me to build um, credibility uh, and reputation of the organization so that we could get more work done for the next batch of people. And the only way to do that was to do stuff on our own and to, to have our own, um, you know, exonerations. And, um, and so that's what we did. Do you remember what your very, very first case was that you litigated? 
Yeah. And so, well, I mean, I, it's an interesting question because, you know, I've, I've litigated some, I, I litigated a, a case or two early on that weren't successful. Oh, but I think okay. the, the first case that I litigated that um, was successful and it was, of course, a group effort um, here among the people who were working here at the time um, was probably Bill Dillon's case. Um, was who, it? Oh, yeah. Wow. And so we started working Bill's case in like 2007, probably. And um, he was also represented locally by the public defender's office, a guy named Mike Parolo, who um, is still at the public defender's office, probably will eventually be the public defender in mm -hmm. Brevard County. And, um, and you know, the, the kind of neat thing about that case was, although we were partnering with the public defender's office, it was one of those cases where you know, we investigated it soup to nuts. You know, we, we found it in our intake. You know, we saw a news article about him on the on the television and reached out to him and kind of matched it up and said, hey, do you want us to work on your case? And he was thrilled to have us. And we, you know, were in the field investigating all the angles in the case and doing the and running the DNA testing ourselves. And so um, that was a big deal for us, not only because it was a huge case and very complicated and super interesting, but because in 2008, we were able to release those DNA test results and really put pressure on the state to um, to, to overturn his conviction and eventually drop the charges that led to his exoneration. So Bill's, we had a number of exonerations before that, but Bill's was a kind of like the first one that we did all the work on with our colleague at the public defender's office. And, um, and so in that way, it felt different, you know, it just, it just felt like, Oh, wow. You know, we can do this work. Right, right. We can investigate these cases. We have the chops to litigate them, to do it and to get a case that we started from the beginning across the finish line. And that became our model from then on. Um, and, you know, to just do all our work in house. Right. So I'll put a little plug in for Bill Dillon. Uh, he and his wife have written a book and I am working on getting him on the podcast down the road a little bit. So, uh, yeah, I'm very excited about that. Fantastic book. Really wonderful. All right. So another question, how does it work if there is a case that you get that's in Miami an innocence project of Florida is located in Tallahassee? top bottom <laughs> how does that work yeah you, you know it's funny we whenever i go to talks and i'll say here you know i always say we have a 67 county practice so we're based in oh. tallahassee largely because the capital is here the led you know the, so the legislature is here and we uh, besides finding innocent people and doing the work to free them we do policy work to try to you know get better compensation laws for exonerees and get and, and try to change the way we do things to through law to um, prevent wrongful convictions before they happen. So it makes sense for us to be here and it's a nice place to live, but it does, as you, I think, are alluding to, present the problem of how can we be in kind of all these different places and um, we just go. Right? And so we raise a lot of money to allow us to um, do our work wherever it is and whether it's in you know Miami or Pensacola or Jacksonville and I always or even down in the Keys and you know I always joke we're still you know looking for the next case in the Keys so we can spend some time down there <laughs> um, um, you know we um, the last case that 
we were involved in in the Keys was Orlando Boquete's case, who was exonerated through DNA testing. Um, but he got exonerated in 2006. And so it's been a long, it's been a long time. But, you know, look, we, if we have to get on planes, we get on planes to go down there. We, um, you know, we have our investigator that we have on staff is based in South Florida. So that allows us a little to be a little more nimble in terms of doing investigation where witness, where many, you know, many of our cases are in South Florida, Miami, Broward, um, Palm Beach, um, Tampa, Orlando, you know, the, on the peninsula, which she just has easier access to. She has a real airport, um, no offense to our airport uh, in Tallahassee, but um, so she can get to places a little easier when we have out-of-state witnesses or sometimes we'll have witnesses in the islands. Um, it's just easier to get to from Fort Lauderdale. And so we remain nimble in that way. Um, but, you know, look, if wherever the cases are um, in Florida, we have a responsibility to do what we can to free those individuals. And, um, and, and, and that's kind of been our model since we started, we'll go wherever the cases are. Now, does that mean that you have to go to those cases or can you pass that off on, on someone else on staff? No, it's usually, it's usually me and the staff attorney. I mean, so uh -huh. we have the, we have the dual problem, which is that our clients are, in prison in Florida, wherever they are, which is not necessarily geographically um, uh, prioritized. So you could have a client who whose case is in Broward County, but they are up near us in the panhandle of Florida and, or vice versa. You know, we could have a client who their case is from North Florida, but they're all the way down in the at a prison in the Everglades and hmm. we don't have any control over that. So we spend a lot of time, both me, our staff attorney, Brandon Sheck, um, our director of transitional services, our social worker, Anthony Scott, and our investigator, Amy Carr, we spend a lot of time visiting clients in prison and they're wherever they are. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it's important for us to get to know our clients, to, to learn about their cases from them because they're like, know more about their cases than anyone. Um, and then when it comes time to go into court, uh, you know, I'm going there with our staff attorney, whether he's the lead on the case or I'm the lead on the case. We we do all the work in court together. Now, of course, you know, we had a pandemic. The courts got used to some courts got used to using Zoom and have kept that um, for for, you know, perfunctory hearings, routine hearings that just happen. So lawyers don't have to show up for a five minute hearing. Yeah. Um, so that's that's been super helpful uh, for all lawyers. Um, but when it comes time to actually doing the, the 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 hearing where we have to present witnesses we have to go to the court and we have to stay there for however long the hearing is and do that work and and um and so we go wherever it is and that's just right. we're lawyers that's what we do that's what you do all right so how many people over the last two decades that you've been operating have been uh i'll say free because they're not all necessarily exonerated is that accurate yeah that's correct and so and we don't like to make a big distinction about that because mm -hmm. um, um i think what you're alluding to is that in some cases even after we overturn a conviction prosecutors will um insist on retrying our clients and then do something like look we'll um you know give you uh you know uh we'll send you home we'll give you a sentence of time served mm -hmm. if you enter a plea and give us the conviction and for clients that are would be facing significant re you know reincarceration if they're convicted 
um, even amidst evidence of innocence, oftentimes they don't want to risk that and which who would blame them, right? And so um, we don't really make a distinction because evidence of innocence is evidence of innocence and we don't want to let prosecutors determine you know, the status of our clients. And so we have, to answer your question, we have in, in the last 20 years, we have uh, freed 30 individuals, two of whom are women, who the 30 individuals combined have spent um, almost uh, 650 years in prison for crimes collectively, you know, that they did not commit. And so, um, which, you know, puts us in the upper echelon of innocence organizations in terms of number of people freed. And uh, most recently with our client, City Holmes, who uh, in March, March 13th, was freed um, after 34 years mm. um, uh, of wrongful incarceration for Broward County armed robbery he didn't commit. And so this is kind of like, you know, every time we're getting somebody out now, it's 25 or 30 or 35 or even 40 years that they've been um, been in prison. And so um, those numbers just keep going up every every time we add a, a, a person to the list of pe uh, innocent people freed in Florida. And so and that's not all the people um, there has been work done besides us uh, that work done by us uh, to free people in Florida. And, and, and when folks want to learn about that, they can go to the National Registry of Exonerations and sort right. and see that there's over 80 individuals that um, have been freed. Um, by, but, you know, 30 of them by our organization in whole or in part. In Florida, yeah. In Florida, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, what was I going to ask you? You just tripped something in my head. Um, yeah, are, are there cases that you take on that you don't succeed with? In terms of a percentage of the 30 you have, succeeded to help um are there many that um it turns out you really can't help and have to turn them away 100 percent. yeah i mean I, yeah. I i can't give you an exact number but you know, okay. we've probably taken you know in the history this in the history of the project probably taken 120 130 cases probably and we've gotten 30 people out mm -hmm. mind you we still have a bunch of cases that we're working on uh that we hope to get those folks out but you know, we've had failures like any, you know, the, right. the system, the system doesn't always yield the right result. I think about, um, you know, my client, Leo Schofield, who, uh, for those who like podcasts that aren't in this format, but like story forum podcasts, um, right. he's the subject of the Bone Valley podcast by um, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning author Gilbert King. Um, and he's still in prison uh we have a confession by the true perpetrator whose fingerprints are in the victim's car and it was not enough to uh, get him released and um he's still in prison and it was a a huge failure of the of of the system to not be able to at least give him a new trial to give him the opportunity to um demonstrate that he should not be convicted um you know there's there's many others i've had cases where I have a firm conviction that the person was innocent, but we did DNA testing and we weren't able to get a result and we didn't have another avenue to, to, to demonstrate the wrongful conviction. We had to tell those people that there's nothing more we can do in your case. Um, you know, the cases where we've thought that those people were innocent and we do DNA testing or we uh, find other evidence that actually confirms their guilt. And mm -hmm. so that's kind of the, sure. the other side of this coin um, that sometimes 
you know, that happens. Um, it looks like a good case and it turns out that it's not. And then we you know, move on because we want to spend our time and effort to to where it can really count for the for people who are wrongfully convicted. And so it comes in all shapes and sizes. Um, but we're just not deterred. I mean, it doesn't feel great when we you know don't win, especially when we think that the person who we're representing is innocent. Um, but uh, we have an obligation to keep moving and, and you know, try to get as much work done in the time that we have. All right. And speaking of time, we are out of time, um, but we certainly covered a lot of ground and you have agreed to come back after um, our two uh, guests, Dean McKee and Stephanie Spurgeon, speak on the next two podcasts and you will come back and kind of talk about what's up ahead for the project. And uh, that will be really great. So I thank you for your time as always. I always appreciate it because I know you're a busy guy, but this is the way we can educate people. And your website, tell us what the website is. People want to know more. Sure. People can learn more about the Innocence Project of Florida at www.floridainnocence.org. And that's all spelled out, all one word, Florida Innocence org and um, I'll be thrilled to come back and visit with you for the second part right. of this. Sounds good. All right. So next up, uh, we have um, Dean McKee, who will be uh, speaking to us next time. And then we'll see you in a couple podcasts. Thank you, Seth, for being our guest today. This is Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. See you next time.